tonight on Arena. Lisa O'Neill on her new album, All of This Is Chance, and Sinead Campbell-Wallace on celebrating the life and work of Maria Callas. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Born in New York in 1923 from Greek parents, Maria Callas went on to become the queen of opera, captivating audiences and showing off her vocal range in productions like Tosca and Norma. After a life that had many of the dramatic dimensions of an operatic role, she died in Paris in 1977 at the age of just 53. To mark the centenary of her birth, the RTE Concert Orchestra pays tribute to the legendary soprano with a programme conducted by Neil Venditti and featuring soprano Sinead Campbell-Wallace who's with me in studio this evening. I was saying to you even before we came to air, Sinead, you know, with Maria Callas, there always is that, that, that this big problem. Do we talk about Maria Callas and the highly dramatic life that she had <laughs> or do we talk about Maria Callas, the singer? What is it about her life that is so, that kind of engages us so rapidly and, and yeah. deeply? <laughs> Well, I suppose it's kind of like her her life was like a soap opera, really. Um, I mean, and I think it lent itself to to her artistry and to her drive, actually, to she was always driving to become a better artist, to become a better singer. Um, she had this incredible um, work ethic. Um, I mean, I think the relationships, if you look at the relationships in her life, um, they were just so tumultuous, mm. all of them, from her, you know, from her mother. Who well, I was going to say, start start with the mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This kind of got her going on the road, the role, the route of, you know, dramatic opposites. Yeah, absolutely. So from the age of five, I think once her mother kind of discovered that she had this talent, this musical gift, she sort of pushed her into into singing, into singing lessons from a very early age. Um, and uh, then they moved from New York to to Athens when her parents split up and she started on this like very very focused journey into singing um she the mother was very sort of controlling she also had a sister who she was very competitive with i think her mother kind of favored her sister her sister's personality and uh, so this probably, yeah, kind of hmm. sort of with this kind of sow the seeds for this competitive nature, which she had um, also a very dysfunctional relationship with her father, who went on, I think, later on to um, to tell her at some point that he had was suffering from this terminal illness um, sort of late on in her career um, so that she would send him some money. So like oh, it, yeah. it, it, it was so from there, then she she went on to marry a much older man. Um, Giovanni Meneghini was his name, who sort of championed her on the one hand. Um, she sort of relied on him a lot. So I remember there was one story about, I think it was La Scala, she was going on for a performance of something. His flight had been delayed to the performance and she literally wouldn't go on stage until he was in the building, until he was side of stage. So a very sort of um, a sort of a strange relationship there. Maybe you could say, you know, kind of paternal, mm. paternal relationship. Father 
replacement um, type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then unfortunately also went on to kind of do her out of a lot of money <laughs> towards the end of her career. Um, I think he signed over all her earnings and assets um, was this once before, they got married. Was this before she had met Aristotle Onassis? I think it was, yes. yes. <laughs> so it wasn't as if it was just a vengeful act? No, because no, I he, think... He, I suppose Onassis is, is the the big Greek tycoon. Yes, uh, yes. He, that is the relationship that most people will know of and how yeah. that in turn led on uh, to the uh, relationship uh, with Jackie Kennedy. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what kind of sort of... Um, sort of vaulted her into this like the public eye really as a celebrity and of course he was also um, you know kind of quite a controlling um, partner um, and kind of laterally in the last couple of years you know these letters have been uncovered that hadn't been um, sort of made public before where she describes quite an abusive relationship with him in many ways and he didn't care for her singing he didn't really care for for music in general Um, and I think that yeah, there was one quote where he was, you know, kind of referred to her as like he wanted to keep her in a cage and like a canary in a cage. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like, <laughs> so she she didn't, I don't think there was sort of one relationship that, yeah, that, that was sort of like... Um, sustaining her. Yeah, that kind of supportive. Positive. She yeah. always seemed to be fighting, um, fighting her way through yeah. life, if you like. Um, you know, so she sort of embodied the tortured yeah. artist, I suppose, in that sense. And then she had a voice that could sing like this. Better. Before she starts another verse, I better stop her because we'll have to listen to the whole verse. It's so hard to come in in the middle of that. That's Maria Callas uh, singing Casta Diva rather from Bellini's Norma. Sinead Campbell-Wallace is with me in studio this evening ahead of her performance with the RT Concert Orchestra uh, celebrating the life, uh, the centenary of the birth, in fact, of uh, of Maria Callas. And, and Sinead, I was asking as we were listening to that, there's always this argument around Maria Callas about the voice. So you with your singer's ears on and you listen to that, technically how good is it and why is it such a topic of um, argument between opera lovers? It's a real sort of case in point where, as I was saying, you know, her voice is like Marmite, you mm. know, people either absolutely love the, the sound, the timbre, we'd say, yeah. the business, and and then other people say, oh God, no, I can't, I can't I stick that. it. Um, I think would they not like? I, I think a lot of people feel that there's an edge, there's a there's a kind of a hardness to the sound, mm. which wouldn't have been, you know, kind of prevalent in, um, say, a voice perhaps like Renata Tabaldi, who would have been her sort of um, competition right, back in the yeah. day, this Italian soprano. Um, but I mean, technically... To my, to me, it's it's flawless, and I mean this the whole style of bel canto, you know the the virtuosity in her sound, the agility, um, the the you know she was able to do almost anything, and she yeah. sang such a huge kind of range of, of repertoire over her career. She she sang sort of light lyric to lyric uh, repertoire like Traviata. She sang a lot of bel bel canto, obviously like Norma, beautiful voice, absolutely, yeah. and um, and then she went on towards the end of her. 
career to sing things like Turandot, which is like one of the, you know, probably one of the most dramatic. She also sang a lot of, um, later in her career, like Isolde, uh, Wagner and Brunhilde. But but funnily enough, she, she would only sing them in Italian. So I think there's, there's stories of her. I don't know whether it's a myth or not, <laughs> but there are stories of her singing, you know, um, like a role like Isolde mm. in Italian with the tenor singing the, in the, the, the Tristan in German. <laughs> so, um, well, that's a relationship doomed to failure. <laughs> very much of the Italian uh, tradition. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, she could do anything. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. I, I mean, so, you know, because obviously, and even the fact that they've, they've, a lot of people who know Casa Diva from the film mm. Diva, mm. Uh, and this idea of the, the diva soprano, the, and she would, I think, McCallis would be very much thought of in, in those categories. I wanted to play a, a clip for you, which is an interview she gave in, uh, with the BBC back in 1968, which became about the height of her powers mm. at this point mm. in time. And she talks about what it means to be a prima donna, which of course we think means, you know, a peacock and preening yourself. But let's listen to what Maria Callas has to say about what a prima donna is. After those days, you go, shall I say, I went to Italy and I started my really great career and the main career. Then you learn to really become a musician. After a singer, you have to put your instrument to the service of music, not only to the bel canto, to uh, the duty and uh, the line of music. Uh, Then on you really become, or you strive to become a musician. In other words, the main instrument of the orchestra. Yes. Which is probably, not probably, it is exactly the meaning of prima donna. Prima donna would be first woman. As you are a woman, you are the prima donna of the performance. And all this you were learning, really, at the time you first went to Italy? Yes, I learned that with uh, Maestro Serafin. I've always thought that was the one that was the lucky main thing man. that happened yes, to you. Yes, that was one of the many lucky things, and maybe the, the really lucky things, because he taught me that there must be an expression, there must be a justification. He taught me exactly the depth of music, this was the, the justification of music. That is where I really, really uh, drank all I could from this man. He was, after all, the first maestro you worked with in he Italy. He was the first, and I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid that he's the last of those kind of maestri. And that's uh, Maria Callas in an interview from 1968 on, on the BBC. Sinead Campbell Wallace with me in studio this evening. I, I just, I'd never heard that type of speech or, or talk from Maria Callas before because yeah. it, it gets blown all, it gets lost in the celebrity and the, you yes. know, the, the yeah. all of that type of stuff yeah. that was going on off stage with the mother, with the father, yes. with the yeah. husbands. Yeah. Uh, that's a woman who knew exactly what she was looking for in terms of artistry. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there, there. I remember reading at one point that the director of the Met back in back in at that time, mm. um, sort of fifties and sixties, saying that she was the most difficult artist he had ever worked with. And his reasoning for that was not because she was, you know, sort of throwing strops and diva fits yeah. and storming off, which, which is the presumption. Which she's sort of renowned for yeah. in a kind of a myth way. But he said that she was difficult because she knew exactly what she wanted. <laughs> she was incredibly intelligent, musically and otherwise, and that she knew exactly what she wanted and she wanted it all the time. That's the quote. Mm. So, you know, she, she, yeah, she didn't, she didn't take any shortcuts. She, she, she sort of had this, um, I guess, this vision musically and artistically and um, 
and she was trying to be true yeah. to the to the music. And I mean, so, that's so. What, know, what does that mean for you when it comes to the, these performances? Do you try to do something in the style of Maria Callas, or is that just a waste of space? You do it in the style of Shanine Campbell Wallace, but telling the, maybe featuring the great arias of Maria. Callas. Yes, exactly. I mean, gosh, no. I mean, I don't think anybody can can sort of emulate her. Mm. But 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 um, certainly her to try and bring in that that sense of um, she had a stillness when she performed formed. Um, even on stage, you know, singing a role like Tosca mm. or, or Norma, um, this 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 great sort of sort of profound sort of stillness and groundedness. I think it's important to to sort of try and embody that if I that, can. Yeah. Um, and also, then, yes, of course, you're 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 honouring her. You're also honouring these amazing arias yeah. that that she made famous. Uh, really, and, and Liz Nolan of RT Lyric FM will be telling the stories. We're as, very as lucky as to have Liz yeah, with us, yeah. and yes, that'll keep be, that'll keep the night rolling. Along. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Would you will be singing the one that I'm going to finish uh, with a little bit of, particularly yeah. so that you can get nervous about the very first note <laughs> of Vissy Darkly. <laughs> yes. I live for life, I live for love. The words, it, it suited Maria Callas Absol- really, didn't this it? Was, this was absolutely yeah. her life, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, best of luck at the concert. I'll give people the details and let's have a little listen to her, Thank including you. that opening note just for you, Sinead. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Nasty to just play those opening notes for Sinead Campbell-Wallace. Um, that, that is the opening of Visidarte, of course, and the voice of Maria Callas there. Uh, Maria Callas' centenary celebration takes place at the National Opera House in Wexford on Tuesday the 21st of February, at the National Concert Hall in Dublin on Wednesday the 22nd of February, and details for the Wexford performance on nationalopera.house.ie. Details for the National Concert Hall performance on nch.ie. A group of women in an isolated religious sect agonise over how to respond to years of sexual assaults at the hands of the men in their community. The following other options, to stay and fight, to stay and forgive the men who have assaulted them, or to leave. In the film Women Talking, adapted from Marion Taves' novel of the same name, the culprits are in police custody, but most of the other men of the community have gone to bail them out. The women are left to decide the fate of their colony. Rigorous and passionate debate ensues. The film features a star-studded ensemble cast, including Oscar winner Francis McDormand and nominees Claire Foy, Rooney Mara and indeed our own Jessie Buckley. Amongst these these women is Ben Wishaw as August Epp, the most educated man of the colony who has been nominated to take the minutes of their debate. The film was adapted and directed by Sarah Polly and it has been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture at this year's Oscars. Recently, I spoke to Sarah Polly and to Ben Wishaw about the film. But before we hear that conversation, let's hear a clip from Women Talking, which features Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy and Rooney Mara. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? Just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane. But none of you will listen to reason. Well, why are you here with us? Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. 
Sarah, you, you spoke about that you, you imagined this film in the realm of a fable. You know, we get a very specific religious community, uh, but we're looking for a, a kind of universality, I suppose, in terms of, of meaning. Why did you want to make the film now? I mean, I, I fell in love with Miriam Tave's novel and I felt like it was asking such rich and difficult and essential questions. And I loved this idea of this group of people who disagree with each other on fundamental things coming together um, and having to reach consensus to move forward. And I think that that for me was what was most inspiring about it was I think we're living in a world more and more where we're kind of shaking our narratives at each other from opposite corners. And the idea that we would have to sit together and hear each other's point of view and embrace the nuance and experience of others to move forward was really inspiring to me, especially in this moment. And of course, um, what we get from the women in the in the in the barn as they are sitting, they they are discussing complex ideas, very nuanced arguments arguments within that, and and often shifts of opinion, tiny little shifts that are that are very, um, you know, detailed. What were the big challenges of bringing a novel of ideas like that to the screen? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just excited by the idea of you know getting the best actors I could think of in a room together to have this conversation. And I think so many of my favorite films are ones that take place in a single location or are centered around a really difficult conversation. So I had faith that that would work. Um, But I agree with you, like that idea of like these tiny shifts of mind, that was so exciting to me because I just think watching people change their mind in real time and be impacted by other people's perspectives and experiences felt to me like something genuinely hopeful. Ben, you're nodding in agreement as as Sarah says that. You, in many ways, are us. You are the audience. Uh, your character of August is is watching these debates unfold in the barn. He's making minutes on what's happening. What was that experience like? The, I suppose the emotional temperature for you as an actor watching what was unfolding on the set in front of you? Well, it was extraordinary on a, sort of a few different levels because it, it was extraordinary to watch this group of actors working. <laughs> I mean, uh, th- on a sort of level of skill and craft and just magnificence of, you know, art. Um, but then uh, inside the character of August, it was... Um, yeah, it was a, re- it was a sort of... Um, uh, a test or a challenge of listening and of empathy in a really um, in a pure way of of trying to imagine well not trying really because I don't think he's really trying he is just there to listen but he's uh, he's entering into these experiences that he's hearing about how would that feel to go through that how really you know so it's, it was it was very interesting very complicated, a real privilege to to have an experience like that. And it doesn't matter what I think anyway. Oh. Is that true? Do you really think it doesn't matter what you think? How would you feel if in your entire life it never mattered what you thought? But I'm not here to think. I'm here to take the minutes of your meeting. And without belittling um, what you did, when you get you, August gets upset very many times, and I thought, I wonder how much of August is upset and how much of Ben Whishaw is upset. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is hard to listen to. You know, I was just 
it's hard to be confronted with pain in this world. And it, of course, it does affect us. But this is, I mean, this is partly what the film's about. How do you, how do you, how do you sit with pain? How do you sit with someone else's pain? Sarah, um, obviously the majority of the film is in the barn and it is those debates, that women talking of the title of the film itself. Um, but there are shots of the outside life of the colony as well, particularly the children playing around, wonderful sense of freedom, a wonderful sense of naturalness in, in that. How important were they to the storytelling that you wanted to have in the film? I mean, I thought it was really important to capture what these women's faith felt like to them. Um, especially for people who may not have an experience of faith, of what it meant to them and what it felt like, and ultimately what and who they were fighting for. I mean, they're talking about breaking down the world they live in and creating a new one. So their children and the future of their children is of utmost importance. So to sort of capture their feelings about their children and about what they were fighting for and what they'd like their faith to represent, that those images felt really important to me. Sarah, Ben, thank you so much for thank being you. with us this thank evening. You. Thanks so Thanks much. Thank you. Thank you. It is a part of our faith to forgive. We have always forgiven those who have wronged us. Why not now? Because now we know better. We will be excommunicated, forced to leave the colony in disgrace if we do not forgive these men. And if we are excommunicated, we forfeit our place in heaven. How can any of you live with the fear of that? These are legitimate fears. How can we address them? The only important thing to establish is if we forgive the men so that we will be allowed to enter the gates of heaven. You can laugh all you like, Salome, but we will be forced to leave the colony if we don't forgive the men. How will the Lord, when he arrives, find the women if we aren't in the colony? Jesus is able to return to life, live for thousands of years, and then drop down to earth from heaven to scoop up his supporters. Surely he'd also be able to locate a few women Let's who left their colony. Let's stay on track. All right, I'll stay on track. I cannot forgive them. I will never forgive them. Uh, the voices of Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley and Frances McDormand in that scene there from Women Talking. Before that, I was speaking to actor Ben Wishaw and director Sarah Polly. Women Talking opens in cinemas this weekend. We'll be reviewing it on tomorrow night's arena. Her 2018 album, Heard a Long Gone Song, was named Folk Album of the Year by The Guardian. And Rock the Machine from that album went on to win Best Original Folk Track at the 2019 RTE Folk Awards. In 2022, her adaptation of Bob Dylan's All the Tired Horses was chosen for the final scene of the TV drama Peaky Blinders. Now Lisa O'Neill is returning with a new album called All of This is Chance and delighted that Lisa is with me in studio this evening. Even as I say that, All of This is Chance and I go through things like the Bob Dylan, All of the Tired Horses becoming, you know, being chosen for the final scene of TV of the TV drama Peaky Blinders. What role do you think Chance has played or plays in all of that, Lisa? It's kind of a hard one to answer, but I, I do sort of believe that everything is Chance. Mm. I mean, I keep my eye on the things that I that take my focus, but um, I, I make a lot of wishes as well, and it's remarkable how many of them come true. Because I remember sitting watching the Peaky Blinders years ago and thinking, I'd love my music to be on that someday, and on the very final day. In the very final moment, I got to sing. <laughs> it's sort of practising being a dreamer and being active with that dreaming, you know, doing something with it. Um, and I suppose I found myself doing that naturally years ago, but now 
if in the last 10 years it is my full time work to to write songs and mm. yeah you do get good at there's an awful lot of guilt that comes with that daydream and then take maybe the small little things taking your attention like a behavior of a few birds crows or seagulls or something on the street and I often think you're daft you're an awful waster but then uh, later on that mm. that that little memory has is you know done something within me and it comes out in another way so <laughs> I've been very reflective in the last couple of years about the process um and it's it's a difficult road because say yeah a dreamer in school does not get rewarded for being a dreamer you have to really have the right support around you for you know parents and uh, teachers to believe that there's something to that child who's staring at the window um, who's not maybe paying attention here. There's something else going on for them. And I took a great interest in Patrick Kavanagh's writing of The Great Hunger in that sense. Um, it's it's the land and the fields that is his landscape that he's, he's dreaming out upon. But he's thinking he has so much knowledge of that because in a way, for I think for 40 years, that's all he had. Mm. Um, so the imagination really had to journey somewhere else. How How much of a chance was it that you were involved in the Abbey's production of the Great, uh, Great Hunger, uh, that was the great outdoor version that was done in and around the grounds of Emma. Was that? Did you kind of bump into that by accident, or how did it happen? Well, all these wonderful invites, like Peak Blinders and um, with the Abbey Theatre, I, I guess they are a chance because they're invites. They come into the inbox, and does you know yourself? This auto email will blow your mind. Um, but it came at a brilliant time because it was the first lockdown. I really didn't know what to be doing with myself. So it was perfect. So I was asked, this is how it felt to me anyway, to go back to school and have a look at this poem <laughs> and see, can you, we want, they wanted me, Katrina McLaughlin is an amazing um, director. I never worked with her director before um, and I felt very comfortable whether she believed in me and that, that can go a long way, you know, um, to respond to this poem and answer Kavanaugh back, you yeah. know, well, respond you- to him, get into conversation with him. And you started the conversation in that production at the time of the first lockdown, as you said. I'm wondering, is this this new album, All of This Is Chance, a big continuation of that conversation? It seems to be that to me. Kevin is all over. It seems, and I don't want to over-egg the idea of chance, but um, several of the songs had already been written when I got to that um, commission with the Abbey, All of This Is Chance. But when you get to a certain an album shows itself to me anyway that a certain collection of songs uh, come together and they make sense together because you know there's eight songs in this album but that's from they could have chosen from 20 or 25 there you know it is the title track because I think it brings the whole thing together and there are threads mm. running through um, the themes um, across the album which just the more I read into The Great Hunger I thought there's so many common threads here and Maybe to the, how is it that eighty years later, um, in the liberated Ireland, that um, a woman from Cavan can have so many similar frustrations <laughs> to the Monaghan man? About to a farmer in, in Monaghan, uh, almost a century ago, eighty years ago, as you say. Will you lead us into um, "Silver Seed," one of the songs on the album, and we'll have a listen to it. 
It was one of the first ones written. Uh, Silver Seed, I suppose, is about the female energy, but not just in women, that the female energy, in, it, it might be a bit wacky to you, but it's just, it's fact, is in us all. We were bo- all born into this world through mother. But it's deeper. It's our connection with Mother Earth as well. Um, it's about freedom and it's about um, trying to be yourself, uh, which is often a struggle in this life when it comes to the ideals of religions, uh, especially growing up in 1980s Catholic Ireland. It's all changed and I've seen those changes and there's a great sense of freedom now to be ourselves. There was such a shame around just our true nature of simple sexuality, like, you know. And is Silver Seed, do you see it then as a as a, a celebration of that energy more than a worry about it and, and, and the way it was treated in the past? In a way, I'm folding uh, old trauma in there that didn't even touch me in my lifetime, you know. Um, but it is not that long ago since the last mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries closed. I know all about this and I know there are still people alive today who are affected by this. So I, there's a lot of charge in this album, but there's a breakthrough. And in that song, yes, it is a celebration. It's a celebration of taking back our... Uh, I don't like using the word power, but um, what belongs to us. Because love is not a decision Silver Seed there from Lisa O'Neill's new album All of This Is Chance and I was saying Lisa as I was listening to that it's the second track on the album um, and the first track the title track All of This Is Chance is, is quite a long track it's seven or eight minutes long I, th- I, I think around, Yeah somewhere in there and, and I was thinking oh I haven't, I haven't heard any banjo yet and then that beautiful string opening that we get to Silver Seed but eventually the banjo banjo comes in My little banjo <laughs> Were you tempted to, to leave it to the one side you've quite a bunch of musicians string players on this in this album with you So lucky to be working with the people we worked with on this they just brought it to a whole other place you yeah. know Colin McEnomara on violin um, Kate Ellis on, on cello and cello Joseph Doyle on double bass and then we have the Brian Leach on Hammer Dulcimere that's a whole new colour Ruth O'Mahony Brady on keys. She's amazing. Um, we had trombone, Colin O'Hara, uh, Lurkin Byrne on drums. And I'm probably maybe forgetting someone here, but like David Odlum, it's my third record to make with him. And uh, he was overseeing the whole thing. No, you wouldn't be listening to this now. Uh, that's that's not a solo achievement at all. It's in, uh, They all have amazing imaginations and talent. And um, they listened to, to my ideas and they ran with me and their own visions came came through it. Yeah, but it it was your idea then it was you were kind you were the driving force behind it. Yeah, well I come in with the songs. Yeah. <laughs> kind of minor me banjo. <laughs> minor detail, but you kinda of need those to start out, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about what a beautiful Big full moon like we had the other night. It's wonderful, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? In, in the middle, in the middle, right the slap bang in the centre of the album cover. And then little um, dandelion seeds. Yeah, and many other, there are five other types of seeds on that. I won't rhyme them off for you now because I don't have them all on my tongue. Um, 
I'm in great collaboration with my manager, you think is a rare thing. Uh, she's an artist herself and has so much belief and trust in me. She came up with that album cover. She's a great photographer and an artist. And uh, that's the photograph she took of the moon down in Wexford one night. And there are her seeds. And she was spreading them across uh, this little design. And her dog came in and sneezed on it. And she thought, no. But that was the shot. How they landed after Larry the dog sneezed on it was the final shot. All of this is chance. It is. It, <laughs> it is. certainly is Sean. chance. Who would have known that Larry the dog's sneeze was going to be so important in the placing of the seeds? I suppose in some ways, Lisa, the album is it's full of references to nature. It's full of references. As you said to me when, when you handed me the album, you said it's the cosmos. It, it is full of very big references in, in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, we are nature. And I'm finding that in in full scope for myself over the last few years that like, you know, my existence um, is really no different to that little dandelion seeds potential. And how does that make you feel? Tiny, but in a good way. You know, like the sense that you might get when you look up at the on a starry night out in the country and you you feel that the planet Earth is so tiny and you're so tiny and it makes the worries of the world a little less. Do you know what? We've very little control. Just enjoyed this, this stillness right now. And I wish I could feel like that every moment of the day. I don't. But when I capture that moment in my heart, like I like to try and put it down. I want to finish up um, with the the final track on the album. You know, when I was listening to the lyrics of this, um, and sometimes I don't know if you did this as a kid, where you'd say good night to everybody and everything, and you might start with you know your socks at the bottom of the bed and work <laughs> your way downstairs to your family and outwards from there to wherever it was going to give you. You could even end up with good night universe. Did you do that as a kid? Because it strikes me that's what's in this song. I think I did, maybe, yeah, little things, but you could be saying goodnight to each of your ten toes and things like that. I think it's very common, but it's also a very beautiful thing to recognise um, saying goodnight to other than just people, but, yeah, things that you love, like your teddy bear or your curtains or your socks. (laughs) Will we finish with with goodnight world then? Yes. Thanks for coming in to us, Lisa. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Sean. Good night, world, from Lisa O'Neill and her new album, All of This Is Chance. Love the whistling at the end of that. Good night, world. The title of the song, All of This Is Chance, new album from Lisa O'Neill. We'll be reviewing that uh, this coming Friday uh, here on Arena. And she's out on tour at the moment in the UK and Ireland. Lots of dates sold out. But she's in the Town Hall in Cavan this weekend, the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary and Whelan's later this month. LisaO'Neill.ie will give you all of the detail. 
Based on Nick Hornby's best-selling 2016 novel, Funny Woman follows Barbara Parker, a young woman working in a Blackpool rock factory who embarks on a mission to find her comic voice in a male-dominated world of the 1960s. The series chronicles Parker's journey from Blackpool beauty queen to unfamiliar territory as she auditions for a new TV comedy show, but her wit proves to be a winner and she lands the role. Barbara's new career in show business is not without its challenges, though, and she has to fight against sexist attitudes of of the era to prove her worth. It stars Gemma Arterton and Rupert Everett and Mary Miguel has been watching Funny Woman for us and she joins me now on the line. In fact, the opening scene of this, uh, the, 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 the beauty pageant as they might be referred to, Mary in Blackpool, kind of sets a frightening tone for the era that we were in and the attitudes to women doing anything really apart from being at home in the house doing, uh, as, as it would have been said then, what they were made to do. Yes, being flirty, fabulous and fertile, Sean, um, was the aim of the game back then. But <laughs> Barbara Parker them, yeah. is... There you go. Um, Barbara, I mean, Barbara is uh, played by a really sparkly and engaging Gemma Arterton. Um, Barbara is... Barbara could have a very easy life, Sean, because she's just been crowned uh, Black Be- Blackpool Belle, beauty mm. queen, 1964. And as her Aunt Marie tells her, you know, Barbara, you know, you have it made. You're mar- you're, you've got a handsome butcher of a boyfriend. You've been crowned a beauty queen. You've got a job. Life is just not going to get any better for you. But not long after Barbara is crowned, she is interviewed by a local photographer. Um, well, actually, she isn't. That's the problem. Yeah. He interviews her boyfriend. He interviews her father. He interviews everyone except Barbara. And when yeah. she offers to give him a quote because she's, you know, well able to speak up for herself, he tells her not to bother he'll just make it up and he says all this to her while staring at her chest and in that moment what could have been you know the be- the ending of, of a lot of kind of narratives for women they're, you know, they're made beautiful and everybody claps and, and there we go mm. that's the end of the story this is the beginning of Barbara's story and in that moment she hands back her flowers she hands over her tiara and she walks off the stage she gets on the train and she heads for London. And this isn't, you know, any just London. This is London of the 1960s. Yeah. This is swinging London where her adventure begins. Yeah, and what an adventure it is. And yet again, um, the men that she meets there leave, to say the very least, a lot to be <laughs> desired. Um, and again, the presumption of ownership, the presumption of that this young, very attractive woman is there for their uses and not for anything else. Yeah, you see, Barbara is really interesting that we've mentioned, obviously, the sexism of the era, which is, you know, itself um, really in your face and true. We've seen this done really well before with the likes of Mad Men, for example, that capture the 60s of this time of of really um, social upheaval, rapid revolution, really changing attitudes. If we look from the end of the 1950s to the 70s, a huge time of of change socially, culturally, economically and every every which way. So Barbara's in the middle of that, but she's also up against structures and attitudes that are not changing as quickly as a lot of other things are. So she's up against sexism. She's also up against really entrenched classism, right? So both of those, these things impact her. Barbara is from the north, so she has that, you know, glorious, rich um, yeah. Blackpool accent. Yeah. She looks a certain way. People talk about Marilyn Monroe. She has that look. That can stand to her in certain contexts, but can also really work against her in others. She's trusting and she's open and she's sure of herself. And that gets read lots of times as well, often by men whose intentions are less than pure. Um, so Barbara 
has a lot of disappointments, but she is never defeated, Sean. She is mm. never, ever defeated. And she um, runs into, amongst the many dodgy men that she encounters, she uh, encounters a, a glorious Rupert Everett <laughs> yeah. as uh, Agent yeah. Brian Debenham. And, right? I mean, if sleaze could drip from the screen, it will yeah. be Brian Debenham, right? Well, he immediately let, suggests, get yourself into a bikini. Let's have a listen to Brian Debenham and hear some of his suggestions. The first of, first of which is she should change her name from Barbara Parker immediately. It's far too regional for his liking and he has a mm. suggestion and she is not totally convinced as we will hear Gemma Artin the first voice that you'll hear Sophie Straw sounds like a type of animal feed precisely if even I a happily married man deeply in love with his wife ends up thinking about rolls in the hay with Sophie Straw <laughs> I imagine what all the unhappily married men will feel like Rolls in the hay? Well, figuratively speaking. I'll be Sophie, I suppose, if you think it'll help me get a job. Wonderful news. To that end, I'll ask Patsy, my wife, to uh, go out shopping with you for a lovely gingham bikini. Bikini? Mm-hmm. It's coming on winter. No, you can wear it for your auditions, so that everyone can see your lovely shape. If I wanted to shimmy about in me swimmers, I could have stayed in Blackpool. Are you telling me you actually want to act? Well, uh, we'll send you out on some auditions with words and we'll uh, call it a trial period. A trial period. No bikinis. Yet. Ever. I wonder what you have to eat those words. That's uh, Gemma Arterton as Barbara, stroke Sophie, as she is now going to become Sophie Straw, and Rupert Everett as her agent, Brian Debenham. Mary Miguel has been watching this series first. Mary, I've just seen the first episode. It's it's based on um, Nick Hornby's novel of the same of the same title. And I thought in episode one, it's taken a long time to get to a point I know it's going to get to. So would it ever just give me less of the book and maybe give me the screen version of it? How does it progress in terms of the pacing and the telling of Barbara's story? I would say, Sean, there's nothing groundbreaking here. It is fairly predictable and the, and the pace is quite pedestrian. That said, it's a lovely, gentle comedy. You know, Gemma Arterton gives a really, we just heard it there, yeah. a really engaging performance. You're rooting for this character. How could things not go well for her? We heard her lovely turn of phrase there. We heard her comic timing. It's like you, the audience, can see her capability, but literally everyone on screen with her fails to see it until she manages to wrangle herself and audition yeah. for what's known as comedy playhouse that, you know, kind of leads her into this whole new world of success. But of course, the irony is the further she gets from Blackpool and the deeper she gets into this London scene, the more the things she's yeah. trying to run from, in a sense, come back to her. So we get this stupid line about the gingham bikini and so on. So, yeah. yes, there's more of that. It's kind of inescapable for Barbara. But, but, one thing, um, but the overall... One thing, just that I would, before you give us oh, an overall gonna, view, is the, the relationship with the father, yeah. George, George, played by David Threlfall. That's vital to the story that's going to be told, I think. Yes, it is. They have a very, very close relationship. He is hugely supportive of her. But as we know, Sean, when you've got a, a one parent at home who maybe is advancing in years, perhaps there might be a health scare there and that mm. might threaten to end everything for Barbara just as she's about to to enter into the world of stardom, just as things are about to kick off for her. Even as I'm telling you that, I'm looking, we've been here before. We yeah. know the story. It's engagingly told. It's a lot of fun. Again, Gemma Arterton special. I have to mention, she is really, really great in this role. She's a producer as well. I could see why she would want yeah. to get this on screen. So There's it, so much for her to do here. Worth it for her alone, is it? 
I would say I've, I've really enjoyed it for her alone. But if you're expecting some kind of, you know, new twist on the swinging 60s in London, you're not going to find it here. All right. That's Miriam McGill speaking to us about Funny Woman, which will be on Sky Max from February the 9th. That's tomorrow night at 9pm. New episodes air weekly and are available to stream in full on Now TV. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. I'm Andine Pasadavan and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Brookless was on sound. Tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.